Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm kind of amazed because it is our 40th episode, uh, which seems like a little bit of a milestone. Um, not as big of a milestone as 50 episodes and not as much of a milestone as 100, which I may reach, um, but a milestone nonetheless. And I look at iTunes and I'm kind of shocked because I think that this episode we might be uh, pushing up against about 13 hours of content, um, which is just kind of insane when you realize that the actual exam I'm studying for is gonna be about two hours, including all of the questions that I get from my advisors. So this 13 hours of content that you have available to you is like the tip of the iceberg of the amount of work that I've been doing for these exams. And today, this morning, this work is actually feeling pretty, I don't know, severe, tiring, burning out. I don't know what the proper word is. I woke up and just absolutely failed to wake up. Everything's been really slow this morning. I have a meeting with my advisor this afternoon, and I just feel dumb. And even though I'm feeling really dumb and really tired and really slow, I still have to wake up and do everything that I normally do go to class, grade papers, read three books, have meetings, do all of this stuff, and I really want a day off. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. What we're going to be talking about today is a new kind of worker who emerges in the 18th and 19th centuries, a kind of worker who is incredibly familiar to us today, and you might even be one of them. We're talking about a worker who is specially trained in a particular kind of knowledge. They work often for a larger organization, and they work primarily for a wage and for continued advancement in that field. These are the experts, and the experts really rise in the 18th and 19th centuries. You are probably you know, if not an expert, then close to one. You probably have some kind of higher education, although remember that only about a quarter of all of Americans do. And it's also almost pretty likely that you have some kind of further advanced degree, which are these days becoming increasingly necessary for the kind of expert, bureaucratic, white-collar work whose rise I'm going to be describing today. I want to orient this rise of the expert with some of the other processes that we've been discussing for the past month or so. Now, there's two ways that this fits in with stuff that we've been talking about. First is that the rise of the expert is a response to the growing complexity and range of daily life as markets get bigger and as production processes get more complicated. Secondly, the rise of the expert is part of the story of the rise of the organized world, the rise of this system of work and leisure in which most of the things that we do are inscribed in kinds of large bureaucratic organizations. Finally, this is also a story of the rise of the middle class, because these experts, salaried with social and cultural capital, are primary examples of the middle class, and their rise is part of the cultural and ideological rise of what we call the middle class.
What we'll do this episode is first I will tell you the big story, the executive summary of what this podcast is about. Then I will run through how this rise of experts affected people in business, people in government, and the professions. Finally, I'm going to discuss some of the causes and consequences of this rise of experts. So here's the big story. Throughout the late 18th and 19th centuries, there was a rise of a new kind of worker. They possessed social and cultural capital, but increasingly, they did not possess physical and financial capital. To put that in a different way, these people had skills and they had connections, but they might not have objects that help them do their work, money, or command over other people. These new kinds of workers, who I'm going to call experts, increasingly worked in large organizations for a salary, and they worked not to gain control over the organization in which they worked, not to gain ownership of it, but instead to advance through the ranks, to get a series of promotions and raises in income. Increasingly, however, these new class of middle and upper managers began to make the gigantic important decisions about the direction of the organizations in which they worked. Finally, these new classes of experts became increasingly jealous of their prerogatives. They became increasingly protective of who belonged as an expert and who did not belong. And because of this, they developed a number of ways of keeping people out, most notably the creation of professional associations and of professional training organizations. So let's start with how this works in business. The big places that you want to look at for the rise of the experts are the railroads and the telegraph systems, and to a lesser extent, early manufacturing. In these, there started to be a stark division between the people who owned the factories and the capital and the machines and who paid the workers, and between the people who actually made the important day-to-day decisions about who goes what and what gets produced. So. To think about this, we have to think of actually the problems of running a factory, the problems of running a railroad, the problems of participating in the Industrial Revolution. When you read people talk about the Industrial Revolution, they usually treat factories as something that's really, really unimpeachably useful. Uh, factories are useful because they get everybody in one place and allow people to you know, have greater control over the people who work for them so that they don't steal and they work hard all the time, and they allow the concentration of machines and raw materials so that the people who own these things can you know, get a better deal for themselves. But the people who write about this forget that uh, it was actually really, really hard to run a factory. That as you made a factory bigger and more complicated, you had to manage you know, these larger and more complicated systems. And this is actually really difficult as anybody who's tried to get a room full of 40 people to be quiet knows implicitly. It is hard to deal with large groups of people. And to deal with these large groups of people, the owners of factories started to have to make a tranche of salaried workers whose job it was to monitor the other salaried workers. 
As this increased, as factories started to be run by foremen and managers, it became the job of top managers and owners to monitor the middle managers. And to do that, of course, you needed the sort of familiar kinds of abstract data about things that, you know, was brand new in the 19th century, but is really boring today. You needed daily reports, statistical tables, graphs, stuff like that. The big story here is not, you know, the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution. It's not the cotton machines. It's not the iron industry. Instead, it is the railroad, particularly the American railroads, where they got really, really big really quickly. The problems with the railroads are that first, the ownership of railroads is not usually uh, unified. They're so expensive that they often needed more than one owner to actually get the capital to run. And this means that owners could not exert the same sort of direct force over daily decisions that they could for something smaller like a factory. The second problem is that railroads are really, really complicated to run. Not only do you need to have engineering knowledge about how the railroads actually, you know, move and what happens when like a piston breaks, but you also need practical knowledge of how to make sure that the trains run on time and, importantly, how the trains don't run into each other. In part, the railroads got this new kind of managerial system because when they failed, they failed spectacularly. They failed in railway crashes that everybody paid attention to. So you get in the railways divisions between owners who have increasingly less influence in the day-to-day -day operations and managers who are increasingly experts in their fields. Uh, the first generation of, of, of managers were pulled from civil engineering professions, people who knew how to make bridges and engine, you know, train engines and stuff. One of the important things that they did was that in this effort to run things through, you know, statistics and uh, uh, abstract methods of viewing uh, the company, they created new ways of accounting procedures that allowed these businesses to more accurately reflect the cost of doing business. And this actually has a really important effect because it allows people to have lower margin businesses, to have businesses that make less profit but are still profitable because you just work on such a large scale. In the Industrial Revolution, it was actually really unclear how much profit a given factory was making because the accounting methods were just kind of shoddy, you know. But it didn't matter because these kinds of early cotton factories made, you know, 50% profit. They were gigantic rate of return machines. However, this started to be a problem when the technology uh, started to spread and profit margins decreased. So this new managerial efficiency allowed there to be lower margin, larger businesses. This happened in the most energy hungry industries, not manufacturing. Uh, there was a ceiling on productivity in manufacturing. A spinning machine can only spin so much, no matter how much coal you burn. The new kind of integrated, managed, multi-divisional company happened first in those industries that were energy hungry, that you could keep on pouring energy in and keep on getting new higher rates of returns without stopping. These are railroads, distilling, grain, and ironworking. The second sector that we're going to talk about is government. 
Starting in the 1830s in Britain, you have experts who have a greater hand in the day-to-day -day operations of government. Um, perhaps you can see this first in the activities of statistical societies and new medical scientists who start to have a role in the sort of knowledge that gets produced about public health. So people go out and they, you know, uh, collect statistics about the rate of death in particular cities, and they try to figure out what's going on. And they use this knowledge to petition government about new problems that they see as arising. You know, people being buried uh, in churchyards instead of being buried in cemeteries, which they believe causes diseases, for instance. Or in the very, very famous case of Jon Snow, using statistics to understand that something about cholera has something to do with where people get their water, which is a way of petitioning government to improve water supplies. Now, what bolstered the power of these experts was the fact that they had knowledge that was not within the reach of politicians. Politicians could not, by and large, get the kind of expertise that it was necessary to do to understand a statistical table or to understand the new kind of medical science. Um, it's like today, when you know you get a security expert telling you that X or Y particular thing is bad for internet security, you believe them because it's really complicated and you personally don't have have the expertise to actually adjudicate whether their advice is any good. Now, these new kinds of specialized experts first got enshrined in new inspectorates who had the mandate to go out and generate information about the things that were causes of concern. And it's important to note the imperial dimension to all of this. The techniques and organizations of government, of this new expert-led government, were first tried in managing the colonies, particularly in Ireland and India, where often it was the same people who cut their teeth on Irish administration and then moved on to administering stuff in India, who set the stage for the new kind of expert-led government of the late 19th century. The problem of these places, why they needed experts in both Ireland and India, was the same. In both places, you have a government that needs to manage a complicated and, you know, scare quotes here, traditional society that it was hard for the governing class to read. And so you needed statistics and experts and, you know, social science to be able to generate data that would let people see what was happening. You needed inspectors to go out to Irish fairs to figure out how, you know, the bad landlords were screwing over the workers because you couldn't get that information through your daily life because the people who were actually administering Ireland were disconnected from Irish daily life. They were themselves, you know, uh, Protestants, or they were absentee landlords, or there were people who came over from London to serve in the Irish government just as a way to get, you know, further along the run of government service. The other problem, of course, here is that these groups of people are managing unrepresented people. You can't go out and ask the people in Ireland and India what they think and what they care about because they don't have political power. So through these struggles of experts trying to generate particular kinds of knowledge, you get a bunch of advancements. You get policing, public health, engineering, census takers, uh, inspectors looking at factory work, and all of these are becoming subject to formal experts who have a stake in describing what's going on in these domains and figuring out how to improve it.
In the 1870s, this becomes further entrenched when you get professional experts who sit in civil service departments for their entire professional lives. Specialists become bureaucrats who don't just go out and, you know, independently investigate something, but work within established codes, sanctions, and hierarchies. And this changes the way that government is run. Rather than legislating things directly, rather than publishing, you know, particular laws to manage the, you know, corrupt Irish uh, markets and fairs, you get Parliament giving statutory powers to civil servants, to bureaucrats who themselves study and carry out the complex administration of the state. The final group of people doesn't fit as well into the, this typology, but they're still really important. And it's the rise of the professional. What we mean by a professional is broadly a person whose work depends on their expert knowledge and who generally do not work for a larger organization. Um, the professionals are, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers who make their money because, well, they know more about a particular kind of expert knowledge. And these two rose in the 19th century, and the basic model for them is pretty much the same, although it happens at different times. First, the big movement is the founding of a professional organization, and then these professional organizations help to regulate both behavior and to lobby government and to restrict access to the profession. The Society of Civil Engineers, for instance, one of the first professional societies in Britain, worked to define what a civil engineer did. It worked to spread knowledge about, you know, civil engineering best practices so that you wouldn't get, you know, collapses of bridges and train crashes and all of that. And it also started to make ways that you could define what a civil engineer was so that you wouldn't get you know, just every Jimmy off of the street coming in and saying that they were a civil engineer and driving down the wages. So let's now shift and talk about the big picture, the causes of this and its consequences. And I just want to orient us about one big difference here. There's a big difference between what is happening in the US with the rise of experts and what's happening in Europe. In the US, the biggest thing around were the railroads. The railroads took more money, more men, and more material than any other sector of life. And so the railroads were really the leading industry that defined the organizational structures of business and of daily life. Um, they also had an outside role in government, uh, which you can see by the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a railroad lawyer and his son was a gigantic railroad owner. In Europe, however, the big group was not the railroad, not industry, but rather the state and the military. The state, tax collectors, civil servants, politicians, were the people who laid down the organizational groundwork for the further development of organizations in the 19th and 20th centuries. This becomes increasingly important after my time period ends in the 19, you know, 20s and 30s when American capitalism starts to replace British capitalism. So why did this happen? Why was there a rise of experts? First is the increasing size and complexity of the market. In the 18th century, we get the market in Britain growing because of improved transportation and improved information. In the 19th century, this market grows even more because of railways and steamships and telegraphs. 
with these larger markets, things start to get more complex and the volume of trade increases, which means that you need experts to manage the increased complexity. Similarly, the processes of production of a lot of goods are themselves becoming scientifically motivated. They're becoming more complicated. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a truism of studying the Industrial Revolution that the key developments of 18th century cotton spinning, the spinning jenny, and all water frame, and the mule, and all those sort of things, use technology that would not have been out of place in the you know, loggia of a Roman senator. However, in the 19th century, you start to get increasingly complicated and expert-made processes that needed specialized and really, really technical training. For example, the new kind of high-pressure steam engine, which drove the railways and drove the steamships, required incredibly fine tolerances in the uh, uh, the actual pistons. You needed to get them within, you know, tenths of millimeters to actually make them work. And to do that, you needed incredibly careful, incredibly highly skilled workers, experts. Um, also, the growing complexity of finance with the rise of, of uh, uh, joint stock companies and the necessity of producing information about businesses and organizations that these joint stock companies could read. To get investment to make a railroad or an army or a canal, you needed to be able to produce statistical information that could be read by the people who controlled the giant pool of money in Britain. And to produce that statistical information, you needed experts. What this did, what this production of expert statistical information did, was it created new kinds of spaces for social action. By trying to make this new kind of expert world legible, I argue, they also created new kinds of spaces that people realized were subject to human uh, uh, behavior. What do I mean by this? Once you understand that there is a really big national market and you understand this through generating statistics about it because you want to find out how many buyers are out there, you also understand that you can influence this market in direct ways. My example for this is in cigarettes. In the late 19th century, they invented a cigarette rolling machine, but this wasn't super useful because people tended not to smoke cigarettes. They smoked pipes or they smoked cigars, which were hand rolled. Enter a dude named Duke who gave his name to Duke University, uh, one of the biggest tobacco manufacturers in the history of the world. At this time, he was just a two-bit local uh, cigarette manufacturer, but he ended up leasing a bunch of cigarette machines. He didn't just make these cigarettes, though, and then sell them to a market willy-nilly. What he did was he got advertising firms to advertise these new cigarettes, to create a market, to create demand. He got salespeople to go out and start to push these new kinds of, 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 of products to new kinds of people. He got his partners to go out on like two-year-long trips to Europe with packets of cigarettes trying to make sure that there was a market for that and that they could create this market. Another consequence of this rise of the expert is the protection of the expert domain. These groups that are the experts have a lot of social capital, and they want to protect their turf. 
They want to make sure that they are going to have their jobs for their whole lives. Two ways that this happens. First, professional businessmen, when they are actually making the day-to-day and often year-to-year decisions about a company, strive for stability instead of profit. Second, you get groups of workers who seek to exclude access from employment and to protect wages. You can see this in, in, in two ways. First, in the craft unions. These are the earliest kinds of unions in the 19th century. They're unions of people who uh, have particular skills, and they work really hard to make sure that their jobs are not taken over by lower-skilled people, particularly women. A big thing that these unions do is say, these people cannot work. These people are not skilled enough. A second way that we can see this is in the British civil service. So uh, after the 1850s, the civil service in Britain becomes professionalized and meritocratic. What we mean by this is that they want to hire only the best. They don't want to hire the people whose daddy is rich and important. They want to hire the people who can do the best jobs. And what, how they do this is, you know, one of the great, you know, technologies of meritocracy, the exam. The civil service exams were meant to judge general skill, to judge general intelligence. And they did that, but they were also incredibly biased. They uh, tested a lot of times on knowledge of Greek and Latin, which you got from going to Oxbridge. Um, but the idea was that whoever succeeded in the civil service exam had an equal shot of succeeding in the civil service, no matter what their background was. The problem was, was that there were a lot of people who did well on the exams who were not the kind of people who the civil servants wanted to work next to. Um, one of the ways that they solved this is by making sure that the civil service exams happened only in England. This was really important because if you were, say, an Indian uh, who wanted to work in the British civil service, you would have to go all the way over to England to take your exam, no matter how smart you were. Another way they restricted access to the civil service uh, happens to around the role of women. The problem is, is that women end up doing really well on the civil service exams, and civil servants don't want women to, you know, crowd out their domain. And what they do is they do make a lot of, well, bullshit to keep women out. And this bullshit is really, really familiar to anybody who's working in a company today and sees, you know, implicit structural uh, 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 patriarchy everywhere that they look. One way that they did it is that they made specialized divisions that they considered the domain of women, education, and charity. Those were the places that women were fit to work in because women had, you know, sensitivity and all that bullcrap. And any woman who wanted to work outside of these specialized, you know, nooks and crannies of government uh, uh, action had to work really, really hard. Another way to keep women out is really familiar today. They pay them less. They denied them opportunities for advancement. They looked over women when it was time to promote somebody. A third way that the civil service kept out women is that they started to, in addition to the written exam, 
have face-to-face interviews. And this put in a subjective cultural element of who it was who could actually fit into the civil servants. If you look through the judgments of women who were trying to get into the civil service, it is really, really shocking because it is really familiar to the critiques of female power today. Women were shrill. They were unladylike. You know, they were either too soft or they were too hard. There was no way for women to express their professional expertise without seeming like a bitch. The final way that they kept out women is that they said, look, women should be wives and mothers, and so any woman who gets married loses their job in the civil service. And I just want to close with talking about the really big questions about this Rise of the Expert that still haunt us today. The big question is, where does power lie in a modern capitalist society? In business, does power lie in the market? Does it lie in the invisible hand that you know somehow chooses which businesses succeed and which ones fail? Or does it lie with the manager who makes cartels to protect their job, who is the actual person who determines the flow and direction of goods? In government, does the power lie with the people who vote for their uh, 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 representatives? Does the power lie with the representatives themselves who debate laws and who, you know, I don't know, sit up under gigantic Corinthian columns and look presidential? Or does power lie with the civil service? Does power lie with those unelected bureaucrats who work in places like the Department of Education making rules? In the professions, does the power lie in, you know, the spirit of the professions themselves, in the quality of the work, in, you know, the drive to succeed? Or does the power lie in the guild of the professional society? And these are questions that we're still answering, that we're still grappling with, that still motivate us. And I don't think that we have a clear answer. Thanks very much for listening today. I have to thank, as always, Duncan Barton for the wonderful image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, please, please, please rate and review us on iTunes. Send me an email or some sort of message to tell me that you're out there. Um, uh, Go check out the website at historian.live. Tell a friend. Light a candle in my honor. I will see you guys tomorrow, and hopefully I will not be so sleepy. Thanks for listening.